0: Welcome to Running Up the Score. I'm Alex Kennedy. This is my show that airs every Tuesday and Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine. He is an NBA writer for Bleach Report and the Full Court Press newsletter on Substack. He's the host of the Big 3 NBA pod and also a lecturer at Boston University. My guest is A. Blakely. How you doing, buddy? I'm wonderful, wonderful. Glad to be on, man. Glad to to be running up the score with you today. I love it. So I had to bring you on this Boston Celtics team has just been so dominant. They've been so much fun to watch. They're one of the few teams that's just uh, completely able to dominate teams on both ends of the court. They're, one, they're the only team in the NBA that rakes top three in offensive rating and defensive rating. They've been undefeated at home. Is this the best Celtics team that you've covered and been around? You've been around this team for many years now. Is this the best team you've been around? this is the best team in terms of impact at both ends of the floor that
1: I've been around. They've had teams that I think have been better defensively. I think back to those Kevin Garnett uh, teams, I thought they were better than this group defensively. Uh, But in terms of scoring ability, in terms of scoring options, in terms of just, across the board defensive impact uh this is the best team I've been around in Boston and one of the better teams I've been around period uh you know as you know Alex before Boston I was in Detroit for a long time the Ben Wallace Rasheed Wallace era and that those guys were exceptional defensively and this group uh I'm not quite ready to put them in that category because that that group actually won a championship The Lindsey Hunter, the Mike James, the Ben Wallace, those guys. This group hasn't done that yet, but if this this group is able to win a championship and stay at the level or close to the level that they're at, at both ends of the floor, I think you got to start talking about them as one of the better, you know, from inline to inline teams we've seen in in recent memory.
0: It feels like, you know, I I look at the Eastern Conference and the legitimate contenders, and I I just think Boston's a tier or two above everyone else. I, I have a hard time imagining them losing a seven-game series. So I guess that's my question for you. How would you beat this team in a seven-game series? Uh, what are some weaknesses you have to attack? Um, what does that look like?
1: I think one of the... There's a couple guys who I think have been kind of really jacuzzi hot or in, in Arctic cold with their play this year. And one of those guys is Drew Holiday. When Drew Holiday is locked in defensively and doing the things that we've seen him do throughout the course of his career, there are very few players who can really... Uh, frankly, take advantage of that. But when he's been bad, he's been really bad. And and we've seen that a few times this year with the Celtics. So to me, his play could be very impactful in terms of what the Celtics do. But Joe Mazzula did something against OKC. Uh, The game they lost, but it was something that is is worth paying attention to going forward. Drew Holiday was having a bad game. And down the stretch, it doesn't matter to Joe. He's just going to play Drew his usual minutes. He didn't do that against OKC. Peyton Pritchard got a lot more fourth quarter crunch time minutes because Peyton Pritchard was actually doing a lot of good things when he was on the floor, and so Joe rolled with him. I'm going to be keeping an eye because I, I I have what, what I call my my watch list certain things that I actually look for going forward based upon something that happened in a game or two, and the way that Joe Missoula utilizes Peyton Pritchard and Drew Holiday that's on my watch list going forward because if Drew struggles. I think Joe is at a point now where he's comfortable and confident enough in Peyton to give him those crunch time minutes if they need be. And in that OKC game, the one that the Celtics lost, 127-123, Peyton Pritchard had the highest plus-minus ratio of anyone uh, or rating, excuse me, of anyone on the Celtics team. So that speaks to what he was able to do in terms of impacting the game. And it, to me, it also speaks to Joe Mazzula's growth as a head coach, having the com- being comfortable and confident to make that decision, to bench a guy who the NBA players have said was the best on-ball defender in the NBA. And to sit that guy on, an, on a night when you needed some on-ball defense, uh, it says a lot about Joe Missoula's growth. So that's 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 something to keep an eye on.
0: For sure. I saw a stat that this team is 15-1 and one when they have all of their starters, uh, which is just so impressive. It it, it seems like they're a team that has the star power to, you know, win it all. But then they also have the depth and they get contributions from everyone. It seems like, you know, you never really know who's going to attack you next. They have so many different guys they can kind of lean on. Can you kind of speak to that depth and and how that uh, is really helping them this season and why that makes them so scary? It's huge because when you have a team that has
1: not one, not two, really three or so guys who are in the load management class. And I know that's like a, a taboo word because Adam Silver has made it a taboo word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, Al Horford is a load management guy. Chris S. is a load management guy. Uh, and they have been able to manufacture success when those guys are out. And to me the when missing Porzingis has been the really shocker to me because they really don't have anyone similar to what he brings to the table. Whereas when Al's not around, you just basically slide, you know, Tatum plays a little bit more four. Uh, You play a little bit more Luke Cornett. You you know, you got Kata uh, who's coming on uh, in the front court as well. And so it's a little bit easier to manufacture that. But what the thing about this team that really surprised me and you touched on it earlier is that whatever your scouting report tells you you might as well trash that scouting report because it tells you that Tatum is a guy that you got to worry about. And Brown is a guy that you worry about. But what it doesn't tell you is that down the stretch, it's Derek white. That's going to hurt you. Uh, you know, the last six, seven, eight games, the only guy that's delivering more in a clutch in terms of in, in by NBA standards, of clutch than Derek white is some guy out in Denver named Jokic. Uh, that's hmm. about the only guy that's actually generating more points in the clutch than Derek white. And that, says a lot about the fact that the Celtics fourth option overall is probably their best player down the stretch. And so from a defensive standpoint, trying to attack that, how do you do that? Do you focus more on Derek white and let their perennial all-star Jason Tatum kind of have one-on-one coverage with no help? Uh, Are you going to, you know, kind of let Jalen Brown get cooking from outside. And if you get too close, you do know he wants to go to the rim and dunk on somebody. So it's like, they put you in this, uh, it, it seems like there's just a, you know, it, they put you in pick your poison mode. Uh, and that to me is, is what great teams do. Uh, great teams don't have, you, you, great teams don't have one guy that's carrying them. When you think about Golden State and their dynasty, Clay has had his moments. Steph obviously has had his moment. The MVP Andre Iguodala has had, had his moment. So the great teams have multiple ways of impacting winning at the highest of levels in the Celtics. They seem like they are they have a roster that's built to do just that.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Derek White. Right now, a lot of the conversation around him is, should he be an all-star uh, You know, as a reserve? Uh, averaging 17 points, uh, 5.3 assists, 3.9 rebounds, uh, 1.3 blocks, 1.2 steals, What do you make of that conversation? Do you think White should be an all-star? It seems like, I mean, Boston's going to have several (laughs) all-stars with how they've been playing. Uh, But it's interesting. I've seen, like, J.J. Redick has said that, you know, White should be one. There's fans that maybe think he hasn't put the numbers up. I've always been of the belief that you would think coaches would select these kind of guys more to kind of show, look, you can make an all-star team by playing this kind of way. You don't have to just be putting up you know, 25 points per game to make an all-star team. I I remember thinking that back in the day, whenever like Jamal Crawford during his best season was up for an all-star game. And I was thinking you would think coaches would be selecting this guy because it can send the message to other players. Look, you can make an all-star team by sacrificing coming off the bench and leading a second unit. Um, So I wonder if the coaches are going to vote for him there. I don't know if I'll have the player vote. What do you make of the white all-star conversation?
1: I think it's great that it's it's an actual conversation. I mean, how many teams can have their fourth or fifth best player be a legitimate talking point in the conversation to be an all-star? And there's no question Derek White has earned the right to be in that conversation. The thing, and, and we had this conversation on the Big Three NBA podcast uh, recently about Derek White. And the, the point that I, I've tried to make was that when you are in the position that the Celtics are in and that Derek White is in, and that is – a very high-impact player who doesn't necessarily have high-impact numbers, the only way that you can legitimately get that person to the All-Star game is winning. You have to have the best record in the NBA, and you've got to put some distance between yourselves and the next best team. And the Celtics are slowly but surely doing that, and to me, that's the only path to Derek White becoming an all-star. They're going to have to have the best record by the time all the votes are tallied by at least three or four games. And if they have that, you're probably going to wind up seeing them have four all-stars. Because I think Chris Asperzing is, is another guy who's put up all-star caliber numbers. He's averaging about 20 points a game. So his numbers are a little bit more along the lines of uh, being an all-star caliber numbers. And the other tweak this year is that Jalen Brown, who has been a guard in the past is now a forward. And that's huge because when you add a guy like Dame Lillard to your conference, you might as well say somebody spot in the backcourt on the all-star team is going to be taken. And so Jalen Brown is with the forwards, which when you look around the East, there isn't this real deep, you know, uh, there's, there's the competition up, up front is a lot less uh, packed than it is in the backcourt and which that's why Derek White is such, I think, a tricky one because he's he's competing for a backcourt spot, which is loaded in the east. But again, the balancing act that can get him in is if the Celtics have lots of success. That's the only way. Because if you're going if, if there's a coin toss between him and let's say um, you know, Halliburton's going to get in. Halliburton probably will start. Uh, but just say, you know, another really good guard who has better numbers, and the Celtics have like a one game lead over Minnesota for the best record in the NBA, Derek's probably not going to get in. But if that number is like four or five or, or something that's, you know, clearly shows their dominance, uh, he's got a great shot at that point of being, you know, having them get four in. Uh, having covered a Detroit team that got four players in, you know how they did it? They had the best record in the NBA. And yeah. that that's the only path I, I see for Derek White, really.
0: Same with Atlanta, the year that you know Kyle Korver and, and they had a number of guys. Was, I think that year they had four as well when yep. they were uh, first in the NBA. So yeah, right now, Tatum, they, they just released the first returns from the fan voting. Tatum is third, Jalen Brown is fifth uh, amongst front court players in the East. Ah, uh, Porzingis is eighth, and then Derek White is eighth amongst guards. To your point, there is a lot of uh, guard talent in the East. That's going to make it tougher for him. You have Tyrese Halliburton, Damian Lillard, Trey Young, Donovan Mitchell, Tyrese Maxey, Jalen Brunson, Lamelo Ball. He's been injured, but fan vote—I mean, fans love Lamelo. Um, so yeah, there's there's quite a few uh, talented guards in the East that he has to compete with. So I I think if I had to guess right now, I would lean toward White not making it, but I think he's had a fantastic season and it's more so just because of the competition than it is, you know, anything to do with White and how he's played. Um, And I think also sometimes you look at like the fan vote and the player vote. I think they tend to look more towards numbers and like name recognition, just kind of what we've seen in the past. So if I had to guess, I don't think White makes it, but I understand the campaign for him and why a lot of people are, are advocating for him to make it because he has been fantastic. Um, I want to ask you about the Tatum-Brown duo, because I remember back, you know, years ago, there was all this talk about how you had to split these guys up and, <laughs> you know, they couldn't work together. They couldn't coexist. And I understand. I, I get why people were saying that, because we have seen a lot of duos that if there are two ascending star players, it's like, oh, well, this isn't going to work. Now and then obviously we see the NBA's kind of evolved and it, you know it's become positionless and, and you ha- almost have to have multiple star players in order to you know become a contender but it, it felt like it was kind of like an outdated way of thinking or things were changing as that conversation was happening uh but people were like oh they play two similar positions got to get rid of one you need an inside guy and an outside guy it was you know fans that were kind of you know saying that or even pundits were saying that as well how much have they evolved as a duo and how much is their chemistry a factor in Boston's success, because I'm a huge fan of the show of chemistry and continuity. I think it's you know super underrated in sports. But when you look at how their their partnership has evolved, and I, I guess uh, yeah, just how their con- the continuity and, and chemistry has helped this team, especially when you look at that duo, just how long they've been together.
1: Well, first and foremost, I, I give both of those guys a lot of credit for not allowing a lot of that outside noise to affect their relationship. Uh, whenever they've heard something that was just a little bit more outlandish than usual, uh, they had a conversation about it to clear the air. It, it was not They never allowed it to become one of those things where someone is telling them one thing and then they go public and, and respond to that without talking to the other player in advance. And so I, I think that first and foremost, they have a sincere mutual respect for each other. Uh, I, I find it funny how you know quickly as they both started to ascend, how there was this this almost like wanting to divide them. And yet when Tatum was drafted, everyone was talking about how this is a great tandem and how they could really play well together. Come trying to come up with new cool nicknames, you know, J and J and all this other stuff. And the one thing that I will say about these, these guys that I think has helped them is that they figured out what they do well. And they figured out how to, bake that into their game without the other one trying to get in the way. For example, uh, Jalen is really good at attacking off the dribble, finishing at the rim. He's better than Tatum in that regard. Tatum is a better shooter. Tatum has a better handle. And so Tatum leans on the things that he does well to help this team win. And Jalen does a better job of leaning on the things that he does well to help his team win. Now, sometimes it gets a little murky where Jalen is spending way too much trying to work on that left handle. Uh, it's, it is what it is. I mean, he, he, it's he's not perfect. None of us are. And that is his kryptonite clearly. Uh, but it, that being said, they have figured out how to work together, uh, without getting in each other's way. And, and it, you, in a perfect world, you would want it to feel more like, uh, a relay race where one is running and then they hand off to the other one and just kind of keep running the race and winning the race. Uh, but sometimes it gets a little clunky. Sometimes that exchange is not a clean one between them uh, where you'll have, you have moments where Jalen will just kind of, he'll just lock into, I got to score now. I got to shoot now. He, the other night at OKC, he was like 0 for 8 for three-point range. And I'm thinking, you know, this was a time where Joe Mazzulla should have probably called the play to get Jalen a ball on the block and just try to clear out and let him get something close to the basket or try to get it just get him off the three point line and Tatum as a playmaker, you know, he's evolving to better understand and recognize that type of stuff. Uh, so th- they're figuring it out. Uh, we're, cause the thing I, I, I keep coming back to, and I know people hate the, you know, don't give me they their, their young issues, but damn, they're 26 and 25 uh, and we're expecting them to have all this stuff figured out. Uh, and, and, you know, the, some, you know, more brilliant my minds, more brilliant than myself and you have, have said that twenty-five is is kind of when the, the brain starts to figure things out. And so we're basically at the almost like the starting gate for when things should be really clear to these guys. And when you watch them play, it looks that way. I mean, Jalen Brown, as much grief as we give him for, you know, that left hand and not passing and being a black hole offensively, he's giving you like three or four assists a game. Uh and as Joe Missoula has Pointed out, there's a lot of potential assists that he's racking up that aren't that you know aren't getting recognized. And and Tatum, you know he's been a he's been a top ten player. Uh, Tatum has been one. He's been consistently among the elite in the game. And they've just figured it out. The one thing that they they have in common, and I think this is a thing that doesn't really get enough attention, is they're driven to win they know they hear the noise that this team can when they play for a franchise that knows winning more than any other franchise, you know, and, and, you know, no disrespect to the Lakers, but you've got some chips in LA, you got some chips from Minnesota. Every chip Boston has is from Boston. So th- that's, you know, and that, that's another conversation for Paul Pierce and others to have another day because me and Paul have had that conversation <laughs> and it's a, it's a valid point that he brings up. But that being said, Tatum and Brown understand that there's a different kind of pressure in Boston when it comes to winning, and they have not met the moment. Uh, They were in the finals a couple years ago, and they just didn't get it done. So they're driven, they're focused, they're motivated to win that chip this year, and they're doing the kind of things you're supposed to do to position yourself to do just that.
0: You mentioned Boston's loss to the Thunder. Uh, I've raved about the Thunder on this show for months now. I, I love what they're doing. I love what they've built. Uh, I always say this, but I think so much of the focus with them, especially entering the season, was on the future draft picks and, and all that. And, oh, they could be scary in the future, but this team looks dominant right now. Uh, they are winning games against great teams like the Celtics, like the Nuggets twice, like Minnesota. Um, you know, They have a number of stars as well and, and some depth of their own. They are good on both ends of the floor. Not quite as great as Boston, but they're able to do it on both ends. Um, what are your thoughts on this Thunder team and what they've shown so far?
1: Love them. Absolutely love them. They're one, of my fa- they're one of the few teams that I would genuinely go to pay and see play because they give you something every night that's special. Uh, whether it's Shea uh, being Shea, uh, whether it's you know Holmgren doing what few players not named Wimby can do, uh, and you know Josh Giddy is a really good player. And the thing that, that that gets lost with the Thunder is we we pay so much attention to all those first round picks that they have on the team, and they have a lot. But you'd be surprised to know that you know they've got eight first round picks on their roster. The Dallas Mavericks have nine. Uh, so what? To me, the key that the Thunder has been not so much the first round picks, but their overall development and and there's their scouting. Because they got a lot of second round picks and, you know, undrafted guys who are excellent players. And to me, that speaks to their culture. Their culture is about taking talent, developing that talent, giving them a platform to showcase it. And now the next challenge for them, the next step is is winning in the playoffs, is putting together a team that can make a deep playoff run. And once they establish that, then the next hurdle, and I think this is the biggest one, it may be the toughest one for them which pieces are you going to break off to get other pieces? Because you cannot pay all these players what their, what their value is in the NBA. Uh, Josh Giddy is, is going to get paid. Chet is going to get paid. Shea is already getting paid. You, you know, you start going down the line. They've got a lot of guys who, based upon the current NBA economic, you know, economy, I guess is the best way to describe it, are in that 20-ish million range. They got a, I mean, they got, they legitimately have like five or six guys who could, if all of them were free agents right now could command 20 million and some change. And you're not going to pay that Oklahoma city. We know you're not one because it's just not fiscally smart. And two, because of your track record of developing talent, I can let this guy go and he go get 25 million and I can bring in this, this rookie who's going to give me not quite as much, but pretty damn close for like six. Um, So it, they are positioning themselves to be a major player in the NBA for a long time because as you pointed out, Alex, you know they've got really good players now who are on great contracts and they've got assets to get even more really good players in the future who will be once, once again on really great contracts. So they are the future. Uh, they are the future of the NBA and I know we like to make it an individual thing. Um, but I look at sh- look at uh, you know SGA and I look at the, the guys around him, that's the future of the NBA, uh, and the thing that they're doing now—they understand that you don't have to wait to be great. You don't have to. You don't have to toil in, in, in bottom of the conference standings for four, five, six years before you finally get it together. No, you can win now if you've got the right players, right pieces. So, and that's exactly what they're doing. So, they're, yeah, they're 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 a really fun team to watch.
0: Yeah, I've heard from players, executives, uh, that they're, you know, maybe the best team in the league or one of the best when it comes to, to your point, developing their players. And they have everyone on, like, custom plans that, you know, is basically focused on maximizing their potential. It's not even just, like, their on-court work. It's also nutrition and sleep. And they have these customized plans for everyone. And they've been doing that for years, even dating back to when they had KD, Russ, Harden uh and and they've just gotten better at it i think so yeah i mean drafting the right guys is one part of the process but then you know maximizing their potential developing them helping them on and off the court that's such a big part of it too and they seem so good at that uh yeah i've been so impressed and to your point i I think a lot of people are thinking oh when are they going to go make a trade for a superstar and, and package all these picks they might because they they like having uh these smaller contracts they might just keep these picks and keep bringing guys in that, you know, they, they lose one player in free agency, they bring another one in. Uh, maybe we'll see them in the draft package a few picks to move up and get a certain guy that they, they love. But I think they really like those rookie-scale contracts, uh, understandably, you know, given, you know, their constraints. So I would not be surprised if they keep a, a quite a few of those picks and just kind of keep cycling through talent if they lose certain guys in free agency, which I think is bound to happen, just given, you know, the fact that they're not going to go deep in luxury tax. So... Yeah, they have a, quite a few options there, and it's, uh, it's going to be fun to watch this team not only this, you know, use the draft picks and everything like that, but just watch this current core kind of develop and get better over time as they kind of all get closer to their prime. Uh, I want to ask you about Pascal Siakam. We'll end on this. Uh, I think all eyes are on Toronto right now after the OG Ananobi trade. Seems like Siakam's probably next to go, uh, especially because he's an unrestricted free agent after this season. So if they don't trade him, they're going to lose him for nothing. Um, What do you think of the Siakam sweepstakes? Uh, You know, teams like Philly, Indiana, Sacramento have been mentioned. Uh, Do you think there's a certain team that's a good fit for him? And do you think we could see a bidding war for Siakam? Because there's not many sellers uh, at this trade deadline as of right now. So he might be the big name that everyone's kind of fighting over.
1: I I think he is. I I think you got to look at teams who are in a win-now mode uh, and they need that one piece, a guy that can get buckets, a guy that, frankly, uh, plays with great energy no matter what situation he's in. I mean, he, he, to me, is the type of impact player that every team that wants to win a championship right now wants to have. Uh, He plays hard. He plays consistent. Uh, He's not – I love him as like my number two or three option because I think when, when he's in that particular uh, role, he can be exceptional. He he can be. And, and we're not talking about a guy who's a pretty good. He's an all star. He's proven himself to be a really, really good player. Uh, and, and I look at a team like Philadelphia, for example. Uh, right now, I think they're good. Uh, I think they can potentially get out of the first round. But beyond that, their roster doesn't make me. Cringe if I'm the Boston Celtics. It doesn't make me lose an, an iota of sleep if I'm the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, there's, they're just they're good team, but just not quite. And Miami Heat is looking at them like, and we're the Miami Heat. We we don't care if they who they are right now. And so for them to to, I think position themselves to at least get the attention of a Boston or a Milwaukee or Miami those type of teams. They need to make a deal like that. I, I think they they need to figure out a way to add him uh to the mix. And if you can somehow do that without having to give up um uh, what's my guy name? Uh Harris. Um yeah Tobias Harris. Tobias, right. You can do if you can do it without having to give up Tobias, great. If it costs you Tobias, I might be willing to take I might be willing to to do that because Tobias is a good player. But if I am trying to win a championship, I think I got a better shot with Pascal than Tobias. To be to be very frank and candid with you, um, I think Tobias would have better numbers, but I think I think Pascal can have greater impact.
0: Yeah, I think Philly is definitely... Whenever they traded James Harden, the first thing everyone reported was they're still looking for a third star. They're going to package these assets. So, you know, it it makes a lot of sense that, you know, they're kind of a team to watch or maybe the team to watch. And then, yeah, I think Sacramento, Indy, maybe some other teams that emerge between now and then. I I could see them popping up as well, but it'll be interesting. I'm hoping we get some more sellers uh, emerging as well, just because if it's just Toronto and like one other team, it might be a pretty boring boring trade deadline. So I'm hoping that... You know, we see a few other teams, maybe Utah. Uh, I know Cleveland's been the one everyone's kind of talking about. Um, Detroit, maybe. Hopefully we see, you know, one or two other sellers kind of pop up. But this has been fun. It's always fun chatting hoops with you. Uh, can you tell people where they can find your work?
1: Absolutely. Uh, first of all, the uh, podcast, the uh, Big Three NBA podcast with myself, Quanny A. Lunas and Gary Washburn of the Boston, of the Boston Globe. Uh, my Substack, stack, uh, the full court press newsletter. Uh, I do some, some work for Bleach Report as well. Uh, also, uh, BET.com is another outlet that I, I write for. Uh, so I kind of stay busy. Uh, and then there's a the teaching thing, uh, which, which is, uh, my other job. So
0: keep busy. My, my wife has been on me to try to go get my master's so I can teach and kind of have that as a, uh, you know, a, a side job too, or another, you know, full It is a full-time job, but have that as another job, you know, cause it just it seems like it'd be really rewarding and i'm i am mm-hmm. tempted it seems like i i, I do want to do it but then it's like oh but i have to do college work again and in class and you know school work and I, I don't know that's tough yeah we we can talk offline about that but there there, there
1: are ways that you can make that not as painful as it may yeah because like i i did i did my masters online and that was that's what best, i've been looking at that's the best decision uh i made and it, it you know you you work it and you bake it into your schedule it, it's not nearly as painful as I thought it would be. Um, so yeah, I, I did that like a, a year or two ago. So it's, mm. yeah, you can make it work. You can make it work, Alex.
0: Yeah, no, I know, I need to keep looking into it and, and, you know, figure out the schedule. But again, appreciate you joining me. This has been so much fun. Thank you to A. Sherrod Blakely for joining me. Now I'm joined by Ford for the Sacramento Kings. He's an NBA champion who has suited up for the Golden State Warriors, Los Angeles Lakers, and Utah Jazz let's get to my interview with Juan Toscano Anderson. Juan, thanks for joining me. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well, man. Yourself? I'm doing
0: great. Uh, I appreciate you joining me. Uh, I want to start with your journey. I think you have one of the coolest stories of any NBA player going undrafted, making the Santa Cruz Warriors via an open tryout, and then becoming an NBA champion. I'm curious, at what point in your basketball journey did you realize that playing in the NBA was a realistic possibility?
2: Uh, Probably summer league. Uh, My first... Well, when I got invited to Summer League, I was like, oh, I have a chance. That is probably when it became like a reality. And that was after my first year playing in the G League. Gotcha. Okay. Um, You started
0: this season with the Mexico City Capitanes of the NBA G League. uh, And then you got called up by the Sacramento Kings a few weeks ago. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Um, When you got that call from the Kings, what's going
2: through your head? How did you get the news? Uh, I was actually... I was... I went to pick up food for my family and I and uh, my agent called me and she initially she asked me if my fiance was near me. And I thought something happened, like I was worried. And she was like, "Okay, well, you know, uh, the Sacramento Kings, they gave me a call, you know, blah, 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 blah. And we were headed actually headed to Orlando the following day uh, for the showcase. Um, And I called my fiance. I'm like, pack everything. We're leaving. Um, But. It was it was very exciting. I mean, there's two sides to the coin. Like, it was very exciting. I was really happy. I was um, extremely satisfied because this is where I want to be. But I was actually pretty sad to be leaving Mexico and Capitanes because I was having a great time there. I mean, it was really fun, uh, great experience. Um, so, I mean, there were a lot of emotions, but ultimately I was extremely excited and very happy and thankful uh, for another opportunity to play in the best league in the world. I mean... There's only 450 guys who can play in this league and not everybody gets a chance at all, if even a second chance. So I was very grateful and thankful that uh, I was able to get another chance to play here in the NBA.
0: Yeah. I saw your episode of the break, which is an awesome behind the scenes show that, you know, takes people behind the scenes of the G league. Uh, if people haven't checked it out, they absolutely should. Um, I saw the episode and, and you talk, you know, it, it kind of follows you and, and you're a superstar down there. I mean, you've accomplished everything in the Mexican pro leagues. The fans love you, Uh, and I know you've said you really want to be part of maybe bringing an NBA team to Mexico City. So I can tell, you know, you talk about being bittersweet leaving Mexico. You could tell you were, you know, having a great time there. Um, I think expansion should be coming in the near future. We've heard reports of that. Can you kind of make the case for why Mexico City should have an NBA team?
2: Um, Well, the first thing, this is a business, and, and the business money matters, right? And there's 23 million, 24 million people in one city that are going to support a team um, there's there won't be a lack of finances being contributed to um, the, the business. That's the first. And second, I mean, you want your sport to grow. You want your or you want your business to grow and appease to people all over the world. Um, so um, like I said, there's 23 million people in one city, if you put a team in once or one team in a country, you have a whole country rooting for a team. And then also, you know, with the restrictions on, you know, uh, visitors coming to the U.S., not everybody is able to get a U.S. visa. Um, so now you have people who cannot come to the States who have the opportunity to go to Mexico City and see, you know, stars like uh, De'Aaron Fox, Luka Doncic, Steph Curry, LeBron James play, which They would not have the opportunity to do so before. And I just think Mexico City is a hell of a place. It's a cool, cool place. It's one of the best cities I've ever been to in the world. I've had the opportunity and blessings to travel all over the world. I've been to 19 countries, I believe. Wow. Maybe 18. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a pretty uh, avid traveler. I'm an experienced traveler. I know a little bit about the world. So uh, I think Mexico City is a very uh, capable place of uh, being uh, a good place for a potential nba team what did it mean to suit up for
0: mexico city uh and then what's with the fan reaction uh i mean i know uh, you know basketball seems popular and it's getting more and more popular i'm sure having a team there now you know the g league team that's only helping but what was the fan reaction when you were there and what did it mean for you to suit up for that team uh
2: the fan reaction was crazy um i expected to get like you know um a pretty serious reaction but i didn't really expect what i got i mean You know, playing in the NBA, you, or even like when I played in college, like we would get twenty thousand or whatever, and the NBA, you get twenty thousand, nineteen thousand. That's a that's a large arena, right? Never have once, you know, have a whole arena been chanting my name. But when I was in Mexico City, the whole arena was chanting my name, and that was pretty cool. Like that's something that's an experience I'll never forget. That's an experience that I'll cherish forever. Um, So I didn't really expect that type of magnitude, and that was that was a lot of fun. Um, playing for Capitanes was dope. I mean, they're an up-and-coming franchise. Being able to, you know, play for them, play for Ramon Diaz, which is the head coach there. He was my assistant coach and head coach on the national team. Um, that was like a full circle moment. Um, and then just like like I said, being playing for them, being a representative of Mexican basketball and, you know, using my platform to uh, kind of boost the attention to Mexican basketball and, you know, be able to, like, Now I'm able to speak about, you know, bringing an NBA team to Mexico. Um, That's been really cool in itself. And I hope to one day, you know, be a part of that expansion when it actually does happen.
0: You've played, as you mentioned, at every level, a bunch of different countries, played in the G League, played at the NBA. What advice would you give to an up-and-coming player that wants to make it to the NBA or just wants to play professional basketball? I mean, you've had a really interesting journey, became a fan favorite. Uh, what, What advice would you give to someone that wants to pursue that career?
2: It's all an experience. Um, and I always ask guys who are young, who are 21, 22, like I didn't make it to the NBA until I was 26 or 27. Um, But I always ask guys when they're 21, 22, I'm like, what are you in a rush to do? Is it to make the money? Is it to win a championship? Like all that stuff will come when it's supposed to come, if it's going to come. You know, enjoy the experience. Enjoy playing the game. Enjoy meeting people. Enjoy getting better. Uh, Enjoy all the experiences that come, you know, with this you know career. I mean, like I said, I've been able to travel the world growing up in East Oakland. I come from a impoverished community. I was never able to I never even left the state. I went to Mexico once actually, that's a lie. But like going to like Italy, going to Czech Republic, you know, going to play in Argentina, like I never even fathomed those things. Right. And so, like, I just try to share with young guys like this is all all an experience. That's all this is. It's a kid's game that you're playing. And yes, we're lucky enough to get paid a lot of money to play this game. But like, don't get lost in the sauce, like don't get lost in the stuff that does not matter. The stuff that matters is just enjoying your life and allowing this basketball to serve as a vehicle to take you all over the world and get you a free education and, you know, provide for your family and amongst many other things. And so, like, just don't be in a rush. Enjoy the experience
0: the Kings were one of the best stories in the NBA last season, you know, lighting up the beam after wins, breaking the playoff drought. There's been a lot of talk about the strong culture there as well. What's been your first impression of the culture and the organization as a whole?
2: The vibes here are elite. I mean, I've been on four NBA teams now and like, you know, every team is different. Right. But like the vibes here are elite. It feels like, honestly, it feels like AAU, like everybody likes each other. Everybody's cool. Everybody's just here to hoop. Like, no egos. I mean, every, every day is fun. There's, like, a lot of little gimmicks in practice that make things fun. Uh, you know, like, if you lose, you got to do 10 jumping jacks. Or if, you know, somebody hits a 75% on shooting, like, you go ring the bell. Or if you take a charge, you ring the bell. Like, those little things, they seem minor, but it keeps, like, the – it keeps the smiles up, right? Yeah. And so, um, that's one thing I've noticed. Is just, like, the vibes here are absolutely elite. They're second to none. That's awesome. Last question
0: for you. You mentioned playing on different teams. You know, you've played with some all-time great players, LeBron, Steph, AD, Clay, Draymond. They obviously have very different skill sets and builds, but are there any simula- similarities that you've seen in those players or how they carry themselves day to day?
2: Uh, Yes, for sure from Steph and LeBron. For sure from yeah. those. Like, there's no accident why those guys are elite. I mean, they dedicate their whole lives to being elite basketball players. So, I mean, I know what that looks like, right? Um, I haven't been here long enough to uh, see guys everyday routine yet. I'm, you know, we were on a road trip still just kind of like getting acclimated here, but I- I'm sure right. you guys like De'Aaron Fox and Keegan and, you know, Harrison Barnes, who's been in this league a really long time and, you know, plays every single year. Right. Um, I'm sure those guys have um, a similar regiments. I mean, that's one thing I've learned about this business. Things don't happen by accident. So, uh, and greatness doesn't happen by accident. So that's one thing I've, I've come to learn and, you know, being around great talent.
0: Well, Juan, thank you so much for your time. Again, congrats on the call up and uh, good luck rest of your season.
2: Thank you, man. I appreciate you having
0: If you guys want to listen to more episodes of Running Up The Score, check us out on Twitter, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere listening to podcasts. And until next time, thanks for watching.